Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. Our text this morning is going to focus on Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. But we're going to read a bit more for our context. This is the fourth and final installment in our four-sermon series on A Better Kingdom. Lord willing, in two Sundays, we will launch into the book of 2 Samuel, which will take us into the life and kingdom of David. And so we'll be back in the Old Testament. Um, I trust that that will be a blessing to you as well. But for this morning, we are with the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3. I'd like to begin our reading for context's sake, at verse 12. Hear now the very word of God. The word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Amen. Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. O oh Lord, our God, Lord, we ask this morning that you would open up your word to us. Speak to us, O Lord, by the power of your Spirit, that we may hear, and that hearing, we may obey, and that in obeying, we may give you the glory. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, as I said earlier, this week completes our short sermon series, A Better Kingdom, in which we have been looking at the kingdom of God, what it 
looks like, how we can seek it, and what a blessing it is to us. And over these past few weeks, much of our thinking about the kingdom of God has been put forth in terms of contrasts. We've seen the Bible contrast the nature of the kingdom of God with the nature of the kingdoms of the world. We've seen the reality of God's kingdom contrasted with the apparent power of the world. And we saw the grace and the glory of God's kingdom contrasted with the self-centeredness of earthly kingdoms. Now we see this contrast between the life and hope of the believer who lives in the kingdom of God and the backdrop of a world without hope. Paul tells us that our citizenship is in heaven and he does that to spur us on to understand the kingdom of God and to understand the hope that it gives to us. And he sets it up against a black backdrop of enemies of the cross of Christ, of even those who profess faith in Christ, but yet do not seek his kingdom. So this morning, I'd like us to see three things from our text. First, we will look at our habitat. That is, the environment in which we live as Christians in the world. Our habitat. And then secondly, Paul describes for us our homeland, where our homeland is, what it is like, and why that's important to us. And then finally, Paul describes our hope, the hope that comes to us when we know that our citizenship is in heaven, our habitat, our homeland, and our hope. Let's begin then by looking at our habitat, by thinking about the worldly environment in which we live and in which Paul himself lived. But we must first give a bit of context to our passage, because one of the, the downsides of preaching topically is you jump right into a text. And so I want to remind you how Paul gets here in Philippians chapter 3. Paul is in prison in Rome the most powerful city in all of the world. It is the capital of the Roman Empire. And ironically, because Paul is in prison there, he has access to the highest areas of power. We see this in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 13, where he says that he speaks to the imperial guard, that his gospel and his testimony are known throughout the imperial guard. And then he closes this letter by telling this church at Philippi that even those of Caesar's household greet them. That is, the highest political authorities, the leaders of this kingdom of man, this worldly kingdom, Paul is before and able to influence. But part of this letter to the Philippians is about those who oppose Paul those who claim Christ, but who do not share Paul's desire to put Christ first in their life. And so Paul is urging the Philippians and you and me to press on to the goal of the prize of Christ Jesus. 
And we must do this while others around us are walking according to the way of the world. It's as if Paul says, if they're looking back or walking backward, you must turn around and walk forward to the prize of Jesus Christ. And so this context gives us the first thing that we need to see. Habitat. Now, what do I mean by habitat? By habitat, what I mean is the place where we happen to live. Where we happen to physically reside. This is the environment in which we find ourselves as Christians in the world. For us here, it is the United States and Texas and specifically Katy. That is our habitat. There are certain things about our community and the people who live in our community that color the way that we see the world. But it is important for Christians to remember that they are not controlled by their environment around them. And as Christians, we do not control this environment either. Because the world is hostile to Jesus. He told us that himself. He said that the world would hate us because they first hated him. And the Bible tells us that the minds of unbelievers are at war, opposite, enemies of Christ, God, and his law. This shouldn't be a surprise for you if you know the story of the Bible, for it begins on its very first pages. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, we see God set at enmity, at hostility, the seed of the woman, who is ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ, and all who follow him, and the seed of man, that is the seed of the serpent, devil himself, and all who follow him in rebelling against the Lord Jesus Christ. God sets these two seeds at enmity against each other. And in our day, this is just as true. James puts it this way in James chapter 4. He says, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Well, there James has well gone past preaching into meddling. He's telling you, if you want to be a friend with the world, you must take on God as your enemy. Don't be bound by the environment that's around you. So what does this look like? What is the habitat around us that we see? Well, Paul gives us some examples here in verse 19. He says, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. And the very first thing that we see here is that the world around us is given over to sensuality. Their God is their belly, Paul says. Now, when Paul says this, he's speaking of more than the organ in your body that processes food. This is not a dieting tip from Paul. Now, what he's saying is, is that the world around us is given over to sensuality. And I use that word particularly, and it's broad in its meaning. It doesn't just have an adult meaning. It has a meaning for children as well. 
Because it means giving in to your senses, to your desires, to what you want. And although we could speak about this in terms of adult sensuality, I think I'd like to specifically address the kids this morning. How much do you need to have a screen, a phone, a tablet, a computer, a television? You see, that's making your belly your God. If you can't do without what you desire, if you have to have a screen, then this describes you. Now, I'm not going to let the adults get off of this either, because if you're anything like me, you're bound up in this same sensuality. It marks our world. When was the last time you ever saw someone not holding a screen? We had a joke. I had family in town this past week, and it was wonderful to see them. They, they drove all the way from Buffalo, New York, which was a very long way, and we enjoyed being with them and spending time with them. But there were, I must confess, interludes where four, five, six of us were in the room, each of us looking at our own screens. Because that's bound up in our environment. It's what we see all around us. Sensuality. Well, there's other things that mark our habitat, other kinds of sensuality. But Paul has another category. He says, they glory in their shame. Now, when I read this, I have to wonder if somehow the Apostle Paul transported himself to America in 2021. I don't know that there are any phrases in the Bible that describe our culture more than they glory in their shame. I am old enough to remember a time when people talked about things in whispers. That they didn't glory in things that were shameful. Where they didn't glory in having children out of wedlock. Where they didn't glory in lying or in theft or in rudeness. But now it's all on display. You know as well as I do that describes a large portion of all of social media. In which we shout how rude we are. How obnoxious we are. How much we dislike that person and hate this person. How much we've done this and we don't care what anyone thinks about it. Perhaps the most egregious example of this that's come out in the past few years is this phenomenon of shouting out abortions. Not just having had an abortion. Not just acknowledging that that's a reality. Not just acknowledging the pain that's involved there. But saying, I've had an abortion and I've killed my child and I'm ecstatic about it. And I'm a better person for it. How could someone do that? Well, they glory in their shame. What they should be ashamed of is glorious to them. That's the backdrop of our environment. But it's not just the environment itself. It's also the goals of the world around us. Their focus is on the way of the world, Paul says. It's not just the way the world is. They desire the world to be that way. It's not that they haven't been exposed to heavenly things. It's that they are obsessed and they prefer earthly things. That's what Paul says. Their minds are set on earthly things. There is a deliberate worldliness about them. Now, when I say worldliness, this is more than an action or a series of actions. 
I think as Christians, we're used to thinking about worldliness as worldly behavior. Paul goes beyond that. It's beyond what they do. It's how they think. It's their attitude. It's their hopes and their dreams. He uses this verb, their mind set on, in several places in his letters, and especially here in the letter to the Philippians. He uses it throughout the letter to describe being of the same mind to the Philippians. Identical verb. Having an attitude among themselves. And of course, most famously, he uses it in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, when he calls us to have that mind in us that Christ Jesus has. To have the same mind as Christ. That's the verb Paul's using here. We are to think like Christ. We are to have the priorities of Christ. We are to have the attitude of Christ. And what Paul says is their attitude, their priorities are set on earthly things. Paul is warning us that all around us are those who have a perspective that is contrary to Jesus's. And that perspective is very specific. He says their perspective is on earthly things. This is a deliberate word choice by Paul. In 1 Corinthians 15, he uses this same word to describe our earthly bodies as opposed to our resurrection bodies. Bodies of the earth. Once again, with characteristic bluntness, James is clear again in James chapter 3, verse 15. He says there is a difference between heavenly wisdom, that wisdom that is from above and that is peaceable and pure, and earthly wisdom, which is unspiritual, demonic. They set their minds on unspiritual things, demonic things. And we see the end of this kind of thinking at the beginning of verse 19. Paul is blunt as well. He says their end is destruction. Their focus, their goal, their purpose, although they don't know it, is destruction. And that's the hope of all earthly kingdoms. Destructions. They will all come to an end. None will satisfy. We cannot look there. So where are we to look then? If we cannot look to our environment, to our habitat around us, and if everyone around us is pointing to the things of the world, what do we do? People around you want you to obsess over politics, economics, sociology, and culture. Now, that doesn't mean you have to pretend those things don't exist. You don't have to pretend that you're not in the world. But you are not to set your mind on them. They are not primary for you. They are not your hope. Instead, you look at your heavenly reality, as Paul says in verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven. Paul draws a sharp contrast here between those who are of the world and those who are of Christ. And so Paul describes the Christian's homeland. Do you understand the difference between a habitat and a homeland? A habitat is where you just happen to be at any given time. 
A homeland is where you are from, where you want to return to. And it defines who you are. And Paul uses this interesting word, citizenship, to describe the homeland of the Christian. It's a word that is only used here in all of the Bible. And so this can make it difficult to translate and perhaps to understand. The, the old King James Version translates this verse, but our conversation is in heaven. And when we hear that, it gives us the wrong idea. Because when we think of conversation, we think of just mere talk, even casual talk. We have a, a conversation with someone. But that's not how the translators meant it in the 17th century. We know this because in a footnote to the translation, they say we mean we live or conduct ourselves as citizens of heaven. Sounds a lot like the English Standard Version before us. The idea is the same. The idea is that heaven is the body politic for the believer. And this is right in line with what we have been looking at the last few weeks. Now, it is no accident that Paul writes this to the church at Philippi. They were uniquely prepared to understand this concept. You see, Philippi was a Roman colony. And a colony was a very specific kind of political entity in the Roman Empire. It was populated by land grants given to Roman war veterans. They were Roman citizens. And Philippi was the only city in all of Greece that was governed as if it were in Italy. Now, I haven't messed up my geography. I know Philippi is in Greece. But every other Greek city was governed as a foreign Greek entity. Philippi, and to live in Philippi, and to be a citizen of Philippi, was like to be a citizen of Rome. Why? Because Rome declared it to be so. It was a colony. Their citizenship was in Rome. They were literally citizens of a different place. They had a different homeland, Rome. And so they would have understood this concept and it would have affected the way that they lived. Now I'm also encouraged because perhaps of many of the places in America to understand this concept here, in suburban Houston, we can understand this concept. Because I don't need to tell you that for many of you, Katy is not your homeland. It is not where you are from. English is not your first language. You know what it is like to live in another place. To have loyalties to another place. To have love for people in a different place. And so you can understand what Paul is saying here. It's not as if somehow you magically vanish out of Katy, but you live in Katy with the reality that your homeland is somewhere else. Paul is saying to us here this morning that your real homeland is heaven, not earth. He's very emphatic about it. He, he does this in a way that I think is difficult for us to see in English. 
He says, our citizenship is in heaven. And when we see the word is, we think it's a pretty simple word. After all, it's only two letters. It's the verb to be. It's is. I am. You are. He is. Right? No. Paul actually uses a different Greek word. And that word could be translated to be in a state or to possess a present reality. It's a much stronger word than is. Our present possession of homeland is heaven, Paul says. Your real home is heaven. You have been born by the grace of heaven. You live by heaven's laws. And you are marked for the glory of heaven. That is where you belong. Not here. Not some other place. You belong in heaven. That is the kingdom that you possess. And this reality affects our perspective. While we are living now in our earthly kingdoms, they are not our home. This has always been true of the people of God, no matter where they have lived or when they have lived. When we have been bought by the blood of Christ, we have been changed forever. We have been translated into the kingdom of Christ. And our primary loyalty is not to the kingdoms of this earth. Our hope is not found in them. We look instead to a better kingdom. Now, this is not just something to make us feel better about the modern state of America or the world to be. It has always been the case for believers. Turn with me, if you would, to the epistle to the Hebrews. A bit further than the passage we read earlier in the service, Hebrews chapter 11, that great roll call of faith in which Hebrews lists the great men and women of faith, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah. And in verse 13, we are told, these all died in faith. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were, now hear it, strangers and exiles on the earth. Well, why were they strangers and exiles? For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They don't have one here on earth. They seek one. For if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But why don't they return? As it is, they desire a better country. What kind? A heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. Do you trust the Lord Jesus Christ by faith today? Because if you do, I can't get a pencil out and put your name physically in Hebrews 11. But you are in Hebrews 11. By faith. 
You have set aside the things of this world. By faith, you follow the Savior. By faith, you seek a better country. By faith, God has prepared for you a more enduring city. What was true of those who went before us by faith is true of you and me today. If we trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Did Jesus fail Moses? Did Jesus fail Noah? Did Jesus fail Abraham? Then do not give a moment's thought that Jesus will fail you. By faith, you have a better country prepared for you. We are strangers and exiles in this world. We have another homeland. And what that means is, you should not be kept up at night by fear. Others set their mind on earthly things. You know better. You seek a better country. A heavenly one. Do you see that God has prepared it for you? Do you know for a certainty that he will give it to you? Now, I know that things are hard. Life is uncertain. Our future is very unclear. I cannot tell you what 2022 or 2023 or 2040 will bring. But think about all of those to whom God prepared this heavenly kingdom. Do their earthly kingdoms exist anymore? Is what is happening to us today worse than happened in the days of the exile? In the days of the attacks of the Philistines? In the days of Babylon? This is the way of God's people. What about others around the world, our brothers and sisters? Where is their hope? Where is the hope of a Christian believer who lives in a slum in Calcutta today? I guarantee you it is not in a piece of legislation from the Indian parliament. What about the family who's had their daughters kidnapped in sub-Saharan Africa because Muslims prey on Christian families. Where is their hope? Is it in the kingdoms of this world? If you read the news, you see how vain that is. But their hope is in Christ. Their hope is in a better kingdom that God has promised to give us, that he is preparing now for us. The kingdom in which we actually live and move is heaven, not earth. That's the other aspect of this unique word, citizenship. I told you that this is the only place in the Bible where that word is used, and that's true. It's a noun. There is a cognate verb that is used in a few places, most prominently in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. A verb that comes from this now, where Paul writes, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that phrase, your manner of life, 
is the verb form of citizenship. What it means is the way you live. And so knowing where our homeland is means more than head knowledge. It must affect the way we live our lives. It means living in accordance with that reality. Don't you think that the Roman veterans took that seriously? Do you think they were concerned when some uppity Greek potentate tried to tax them? Or do you think they looked at him and said, I'm not a citizen of your kingdom. I'm a citizen of Rome. That's where my homeland is. That's where my loyalty lies. That's where my hope comes from. Don't you think they thought their rights as Romans were important? And so what does that mean for you and me today? Are you undertaking the responsibilities of citizens of heaven? Are you serving your king today? Do others know that he is your king? And if not, why not? Is our calling as Christians to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven? Well, verse 20 presents for us this glorious reality that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But Paul does not stop there. He tells us that our hope comes from the knowledge of the reality of what that means in our lives. He puts it this way. Our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior. The Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. I think this is what Paul means. It is crucial that we see our citizenship is in heaven and that we seek a better kingdom. But that kingdom is not ultimate. It is not a blessing that we wait for. It's not a kingdom we wait for. We wait for a person. We wait for the king, the Lord Jesus Christ. We already possess this kingdom of heaven. We are in it, and in it, we wait for the Savior. Now, notice how particular Paul is here. Throughout history, people have waited for saviors. They've called for political leaders, social reformers, liberators. They, but we are not waiting for any old savior. We are waiting for the savior. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul deliberately uses the full title for Jesus. It's used 63 times in the New Testament in this fashion. And it tells us everything about Jesus that we need to know. He is Lord. He is God himself, the Lord. He is Jesus, the one who saves his people from their sins. He is Savior. And he is Christ, the Messiah, the ruler of his heavenly kingdom. We love the kingdom because we love the king. 
We want the kingdom because we want to see the king. This should be the most eager expectation of your life. It shouldn't be waiting for the new iPhone or the next vacation or a new job or the next election that will set things right. No, even the way Paul writes it jumps off the page. He actually says, from it, a savior we are awaiting. He pushes the word savior up to the front of the sentence. He wants our attention. And do you see the emphasis here on hope? What will happen when Jesus returns? The Bible, the Bible tells us that when Jesus returns, he will return as judge and he will set all things straight in the world. But Paul doesn't emphasize that here. Do you notice that? He doesn't say we await a judge who fix all the problems. He says we await a savior. He wants us to know that our hope is in Christ. That he is our savior. And, and we also see it in the way Paul speaks about us waiting. The word that he uses. This is not the ordinary word for wait. Don't think about it as waiting around for dinner to be on the table. Or waiting in the line at school. Or, or waiting in the office for the doctor. No, no, no. This is a special word. It means to strain forward. It means to wait with eager excitement. To get up on your tiptoes to try to see what is coming. If you've ever been to a parade with young children, you know what I mean. When you get in line with the chairs at the parade and you hear the music, the fife and the drums and the trombones and the trumpets off in the distance as they're coming closer to the parade route and the young children are straining to see on tiptoes, lift me up, Dad, lift me up so I can see. Where is it? I want to see it. Where are the clowns? Where are the balloons? Where's the, the instruments? That's the kind of waiting we have for Jesus. It's expectant. We want to experience the fullness of his kingdom because we know that means we will see our king. And we wait for one other thing. It's a thing that Jesus will bring about when he comes. Paul tells us that he will transform us in accordance with the reality that we know. We will experience in full the reality of the heavenly kingdom. We will have transformed body. Now, we have to understand that our transformed bodies will be superior in every way to our earthly bodies. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 15. They will be made fit for our homeland. They will be eternal and incorruptible. But it's not just that they'll be better in every way. They will be better because they will be like our Savior's body. Do you see that? What will we leave behind? Paul says we leave behind our lowly body. The text actually says the body of our humiliation. That means the body that is the instrument of our sin. 
Not that the body is bad, but that the body is the occasion for so much of our sinning. And we will leave that behind. Fighting sin is hard work, isn't it? Sin comes at us all the time. When we're tired. When we're hungry. When we're unprepared. Does it ever seem like you will be free from sin? Even the youngest among us seem always to be getting in trouble. But there will come a day when Jesus will return. When the king will be before us and he will transform our bodies and we will lay aside this body of our humiliation and we will take on a body of glory. Do you see what we'll be transformed to? To be like the body of his glory. We will be like Jesus. What a kingdom. What a hope. Our homeland is a place where Jesus is and where he makes us like himself. Could there be any better kingdom? When you think about that, how could you ever get excited about correcting someone on social media or winning an election? Let those whose minds are set on earthly things care about that. We wait for Jesus. We wait for a better kingdom where we will be transformed into glory. Thinking about our heavenly kingdom is not just about our ultimate destiny. Yes, we long for eternity to be with our Savior. But that longing must affect the way that we live now. Your citizenship is in heaven, Paul tells us. That means heaven should dominate your thoughts. Your loyalty should be for your homeland. Your desire should be to see its reality in your life. Is heaven real for you? Or is it just a future thought? Believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, this world is not your home. Your homeland is a kingdom ruled and established by King Jesus. Your hope is not in reformation or education, in renewed culture, or in the good old days. Your hope is in the one who is coming back. The one you wait for on tiptoes. Your hope is in Jesus. Let's pray.